Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One of the hardest things for every son is to feel that they've stepped out into the world on their own. And one of the ways to make that easier, I believe, is to uh, show your son that your imperfections and, and, and talk about them. So it makes it because imperfections are part of the deal. Welcome to the Movember podcast, a show dedicated to the real stories about dealing and sometimes not dealing with life's challenges and changes, drawing out the tools that lead to a happier, healthier and longer life. I'm your host, Adam Garoni, one of Movember's co-founders. And one of our goals is to have honest conversations about life's milestone moments, becoming an adult, a parent, a spouse, losing someone close, facing and healing from a mental or physical illness. That's why every episode in this season is dedicated to transition. For this episode, I spoke with Andrew Denton about one of life's most difficult transitions, losing a parent. Andrew Denton is a TV producer, writer and podcast host and we met early one sunny morning in Sydney to talk about life and death, grieving and healing. I have a sense of finite time. You know, there was a reason. My dad died at pretty young because he had smoked all his life and because when he was in the British Army he'd had a bad accident, he couldn't um, exercise. So mm. he had a bunch of things going against him. I don't smoke and I'm a, a finely tuned athlete, so I'm quite lucky. <laughs> You're not meant to laugh at that so quickly. <laughs> Although I really appreciate Andrew sharing his experience with us, his opinions are his own. And if you're sensitive to stories about terminal illness, death or grief, this may not be the right episode in our series for you to hear right now. If you're an Aussie, you probably know Andrew Denton for his sense of humour and wire ring glasses. 20 years ago, he started hosting shows like Blah Blah Blah. And more recently, Andrew hosted the celebrity interview show Enough Rope and quiz game show Randling. While home in Australia, I spoke with Andrew about how he has and hasn't healed from his loss of his father nearly 20 years ago. He had an outrageous, hilarious sense of humour all the time. Uh, he could be very argumentative. I think I said at his funeral, if, if ever there was a man that knew another word for thesaurus, it was my dad. <laughs> Andrew's father, Kit Denton, was born in England in 1928. Kit served in the British Army and after World War II, he moved to Western Australia to work as a gold miner. Paint the picture of your dad. What, what was he like? Uh, he was, <laughs> he moved to Australia in his uh, late 20s and did all kinds of jobs from being a gold miner to a fencer making fences, all kinds of stuff before I ended up in broadcasting. 
Did your dad's work at the ABC inspire you to you know, take a similar career path? Not the inspiration. I'm sure he was the influence in that, uh, you know, like a lot of people, when you leave school, you've got no idea what you're going to do. I actually wanted to be halfback for the South Sydney Rugby League football team, but I couldn't tackle, which in fact would have made me quite a good halfback for them. But um, <laughs> no, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And dad uh, suggested that I do a, a media course and that kind of led me on my path. Obviously, I'd grown up in an environment where there's, you know, it was a media household. And, mm. uh, and as it turned out, you know, the, probably the strongest point of my career was interviewing people. And, and growing up, Dad was, we would talk about how people interview people. So I was kind mm. of schooled. I was lucky to be schooled in that way. But, but Dad, he, he wasn't prescriptive, like, oh, you should follow this path or follow that path. He was just encouraging. He was, uh, he was fierce in his views, um, incredibly well read. I think he read about four books a week and he, wow. he just really, you know, I'm just a, a, a dilettante compared to him in terms of world and life knowledge. Um, he could be a very tough dad and, uh, uh, but he was exciting. He was really interesting and challenging. Yeah. And so what do you mean by tough? Uh, he uh, punished us physically and um, because that's how he was brought up and um, not a lot, but uh but when we were young, yeah, that's what he did. And uh, you didn't want to get on the wrong side. And, um, and you know, it, it, we didn't live in fear or anything like that. Mm. We had, we, my chief memory of my family growing up is uh, of laughter. And siblings? How many siblings? And where two, did you fit in the... Two oh. sisters. I was in the middle. So, right. you know, um, I was able to play one off against the other all the time. It was excellent. We were a volatile family. My mother was kind of mad Irish, she called herself. And... Uh, we could argue with the best of them we, and people would come and visit and <laughs> we would range from a full-on Barney to just total madness and hilarity in the space of 10 minutes. I grew up in a household where humour was three-quarters of our currency. So so really bad dad jokes. Though. I do so, really bad dad jokes. In fact, I love to tell a story. I made some bad dad joke uh, to my wife, Jennifer, <laughs> when Connor was about 16. And Connor, and it still makes me laugh, he looked at, Jennifer and said, oh, mum, is this really the best you could do? And I laughed and laughed and then I said, well, actually, son, it is and that says a lot about your mum. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ham, what, what was the joke? It's actually, I'm quite proud of it because you know how bad Christmas cracker jokes are. Mm, They're a yeah. special level of bad. They're not just <laughs> common or garden bad. They're, somebody's gone to great effort to make So this is my Christmas cracker joke. Right. Okay, so everyone get ready. This, it's not going to be good and it's not meant to be good and I'm proud of it. I used to be a zookeeper. The pay was good, but the owls were lousy. There you go. Dad joke, see? <laughs> yes, that's yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the new level of dad joke right there. So if what you're hearing there is that uh, I have an abusive relationship towards my family. <laughs> <laughs> Kit Denton died in 1997, just a few years after the birth of Andrew's son, Connor. Andrew was just learning to be a father when he lost his. Growing up, what, what did you learn about being a man from, from your dad? And, and then further to that, how have your views changed around masculinity and, and being a modern man? That's a really complex question. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've, I've never thought to answer that question before. What did I learn about being a man from my dad? Um, I think res- respect. Uh, I think respect for people, uh, regardless of who they are. <laughs> um, you know, my dad was a man's man in many ways in that he had a lot of male friends 
and uh, he actually had things called gentlemen's weekends where wow. all his different friends from all walks of life, some were journalists, some were police, some were filmmakers, they would just spend an entire weekend. Everyone else would leave the house and they'd play cards and they'd drink and they'd do whatever they did. Mm. Certainly when it relates to, to mental health, what we've found through our research and, and just being a man is it's so important to spend time with other men doing whatever it is you're into, whether it's fishing, whether it's golf, surfing, yeah. whatever, and and talking not just about the football and the you know what's happening in the weather or whatever, but um, having real conversations. Mm. And it sort of sounds like those gentlemen's weekends were were just that. There was you know something going on, but there was there was other conversations. Obviously. Yeah, look, I, I don't know, I don't know, and look, I'd have to say. Um, I don't know that uh, I think Dad being uh, of his generation and from England, uh, I'm not sure that he was raised in a tradition of really sharing your feelings. I think intellectually he knew how to do that. But I would say that men today, not across the board but in general, are much better at having that conversation you just described than my dad's Mm. generation were. Do you see that in your son, Connor, and and his mates? Yeah, totally, Uh, absolutely. And and also – uh, and I suppose this is a difference between the way I was fathered and the way I have fathered. I've always believed in um, talking with Connor about uh, feelings and mm. about, uh, you know, um, the the worst thing I have done as a father, the worst thing I exhibit as a father is anger. I've exhibited mm. anger. And um, and I've talked with Connor about that and uh, and talked about how this is, Anger is a very corrosive thing and I've admitted to fault, uh, which I think is very important as a father. Mm. No one is perfect. We had one perfect person. We nailed them to a piece of wood, you know. (laughs) No one's perfect. (laughs) That's, that's, you know, vulnerability and and the way we're conditioning our boys um, and and this is mothers and fathers in the community as a whole, we do need to change some of the those aspects and, and make it okay for for boys to be vulnerable and, and to put their hand up and ask for help. And I, I see that happening because this can play out very negatively later on in life. Absolutely. And I, I, one of my favourite expressions, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, there's someone in Queensland came up with it about to do with Are You OK Day and mm. uh, was yep. soften the fuck up, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, we've we've done some work with them. And, yeah. Because um, it is really interesting. We've, again, done some research around... Um, Asking guys, are you there for your mates if if something goes down? Yeah, you know, to the extent that you'd lend them money or do whatever it is you would need to do to help them. And yeah, you know, ninety nine out of a hundred guys will say, yeah, for sure, I'm there for my mates. But you flip the question and then ask them, well, if you're going through a bad time, would you ask your mates for help? And it's a very different statistic. This is like, you know, one in ten guys would actually feel comfortable doing that. That's true, and I think that is still an issue. And um, you know, it's been great in recent years to see. Uh, footballers, for example, who are strong masculine role models, start to talk openly about the kind of problems they have. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm very proud of my son is that I have seen from a young age he's he's deeply empathetic to his friends and is somebody that offers himself to be there. So what aspects of your father have you tried to emulate as, as a dad? Giving time. doesn't matter what else you have in life, you know, financial resources or mm. whether you started in a good or bad position socially, everybody is allotted roughly the same amount of time. And that is the true measure of the human being where you put your time. 
How often do you um, get to see Connor and, and what do you guys like to do when, when you're together? Uh, I just came from breakfast with him. We catch up at least once a week. He comes out and spends the night with us and uh, he's training to be a fitness instructor so he'll sometimes take me to the gym, which is very painful for yeah, me. That'd be good for your modelling career. Oh, well, absolutely. I, I don't have abs, I have flabs. Uh, <laughs> um, we hang out, we watch uh, movies, television, we, we talk about whatever stuff we're both going through in our lives. Uh, we'll go for walks. Um, he's a lovely, sweet, smart, funny, really loving young man, actually. And uh, I love the fact that he's just turned 23, that we still hug and kiss in public. There's none of that, you know, male reserve. Um, to me, that's a, a beautiful thing that uh, we have that relationship. He's a, just a beautiful boy. So your, your father was 68 when yeah. he passed away. Yeah. So do, do you see that as a key milestone for you personally uh, to live beyond 68? Well, I don't, I don't have a planner on it. Uh, I would certainly like to live beyond 68. I'm now 57 and I'm keenly aware, you know, I'm, pr- I'm nowhere near as fit and healthy as I should be. What do you do? to stay mentally healthy and, and, and physically healthy as best you can? Well, uh, I'll answer physically first because not enough. I mean, mm. I, I, I try a bit of Pilates, but I'm incredibly non-bendy. <laughs> <laughs> I do play tennis. I love to run around. I'm like mm. a lot of blokes. Um, simply having the prospect of a ball going somewhere is almost all I need in life. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the potential of a ball is the most magnificent thing. Um, but I need to work harder because I, I like to, you know, climb up mountains and, and go scuba diving and things like that. So I do have, you know, to go back to your question, I do have this sense of I remember Dad had his first heart attack in his 50s and I do have this kind of slight shadow in my mind of, gee, once something breaks, everything else gets harder. Mm. So that conversation is in my head. My mental health. Uh, at different times in my life, particularly when I was younger, I did have issues with depression and um, it, I wasn't until my 30s that I actually got a diagnosis or even understood what it yeah, was because it. there was no real conversation about it. Mm. And um, uh, so what I do for my mental health, what I know now, having been through that uh, more than once, I recognise the triggers and I recognise the things that are putting me back into that position and so I act on it. And the triggers are generally if I completely overstress myself and get very run down, um, uh, that, that can lead to that, that depressive sense. It's interesting knowing a number of comedians um, and some speak quite openly about this. A lot of them seem to, and I don't mean to speak generally, but a lot of them seem to have challenges with their mental health. But when they're on the stage and performing, it's just a totally different persona and you, you mm. wouldn't, you know, you couldn't reconcile that, you know, off the stage they're, they're, they're challenged. And I'm just wondering, you know, was that, was there a big difference between you sort of off stage and, and when you were on stage? Not really because I'm, I'm an appalling actor and uh, <laughs> I just didn't have another act. I mean, what the, me on camera or me on stage was just a heightened version of me. It wasn't a different version of me. Um, in private, I'm, a, I'm very happy being solitary and I really, I require space away sometimes just to sit quietly. Um, 
but that's that's it. I, I'm not one of those. When, even when I was doing comedy, I wasn't one of those people that felt the need to be. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST on all the time. What was the trigger at 30 years of age to, to sort of act on that and I, seek some help? I had started an, a new uh, live two nights a week television show at Channel 7 and I basically uh, stressed myself out to such a point that I literally had to take two weeks. I, I, I was only a couple of months into the show. I had to take two weeks off air and uh, I had to go and get help. And worse than that, uh, Connor had just been born, literally just been born. So those two weeks I took off were, were when he was born. Mm. So I had to go and do something about it. And that's that was the first time I discovered um, uh, that you could get uh, medical help, you could get chemical help, mm. you could actually, what I describe as the, you could get a floor put in that you can climb out of. Mm. Um, and uh, But it wasn't, I mean... I believe that uh, drugs have their place in this and can have their place, uh, but it's also there's cognitive therapy and that there's actually just getting an understanding of how did I get here and how do I get out? And um, and as I said, recognising the things that put you in that place so that if they start to happen again, you can change what's happening. Yeah, and when, when, so when you say drugs, you mean like antidepressants? Antidepressants, yeah, yeah, yes. Like yes, not, uh, <laughs> not booze and dope, no. Right, right, no, no. no. You know, humour? has been a central part of um, how we've got men to engage in their health. You know, even with Movember, it's the yeah. growing your moustache and the banter and how shit your moustache looks compared to the next Humor guy. Humour is so important. I remember one of the first times I went to uh, a psychiatrist to, you know, to deal with what was going on and they had to, they got a call in the middle of our session, something I had to attend to, so he went out and I got a I got up from where I was sitting and went over to his notepad, no, to his computer, and I just typed in, this guy is absolutely batshit and <laughs> batshit crazy. And then I sat down again. And, of course, he comes back to his computer and he's, we're having the conversation and he, I can see him glance up at the screen and I can see this <laughs> thing of, who wrote that? <laughs> You've had a number of transitions 
in your life, professionally, from from comedian to um, you know uh, investigative journalist, and what I, I wanted to shift gears now around your advocacy work and what your your passion is is now. So. Um, tell us how that started and, uh, you know, I've listened to the Better Off Dead podcast and, um, you yeah, know, I'm just really interested in, in understanding, understanding that. Okay. So my advocacy is around what's called voluntary assisted dying. Um, some know it as euthanasia, but it's, it's essentially, it's a law to help people who are terminally ill, who can't be helped by medicine, uh, to die a gentle and compassionate death rather than what they're currently being forced to do, which is either die a brutal death or starve themselves to try and speed things up or end their own lives in a very ugly way. Um, and I'm doing this because of my dad, because I watched him die very painfully uh, 20 years ago. And um, uh, a few years ago I set off to answer the question, which is why can't we have a law in Australia to help people like my dad in that position? Um, and I've now spent almost three years on it and I've spent thousands of hours talking to people on all sides of this debate because it's a big moral and ethical debate. Um, I, but mostly I've spent time with people whose lives have been terribly scarred by our existing legal situation. And the reason I feel so passionate about it is because even though it's a small percentage of Australians, it's not a small number of people. And if, it, if you're that person, it's the whole universe. And what I'm aware of is that under our current laws, there are terrible things being forced upon really good people every week and it shouldn't be happening. Death is one of those inevitable things but none yeah. of us want to talk about it. Absolutely right. What's this saying? In, in Victorian times they talked about death all the time and never about sex and now it's the other way around. Look, I get it. I, newsflash, I'm not very keen on the thought of being dead mm. but it is inevitable and um, uh you know, I think part of the reason we've struggled with the kind of law I'm advocating for in Australia is we are a fairly buttoned-down society in talking about this stuff. It's interesting. It's been an interesting week for me. Um, coming in on Sunday from from LA, um, Monday, um, a funeral of um, a very very good friend, and her dad passed from cancer, and then uh, a funeral tomorrow, which which is going to be a true celebration. My yeah. and she passed at ninety eight. But in both cases, it. it it's interesting because it's um, in uh, the funeral on, on Monday, the cancer came back. Um, uh, Jim decided not to pursue any more treatment and the doctors agreed with that. Mm. And then essentially he was on, on painkillers and then no food, no water, and then five days later yeah. passed. And similarly with Nan, a slightly shorter time frame. But... You know, I, I distinctly remember mum telling me that Nan was going through this over these, you know, every every six hours was going, how, you know, is, is she still there? Is she still there? Yeah. And uh, I can only imagine, and, and this I, I assume is the, the motivation for your work now to actually see that um, and then they just take, you know, their last breath because their body is literally shut down because it's deprived of food and water. Yeah. Look, the way you're... Uh friend died and your nan died, is how it is for most Australians. Most Australians will die, uh, you know, a reasonable death. Um, how my father died was not like that. His last three days were very painful. I can see them. I can see, I can hear and see it right now as I'm talking to you. Uh, and, but I have to say, what happened to my dad is nothing compared to what I've learned since is happening to some people. And um, for, for example, 
um, there was a, a woman in Australia called Eileen Dorr who was 91, I think, and she had terminal cancer and um, she she wanted it over but she had no legal options for that. So she did the only thing that our law will allow. She stopped eating and drinking. Mm. That's illegal to do that. And um, it, and she kept a diary and it took her 17 weeks. Oh. And in her diary she wrote, my country's laws decree death by a thousand cuts for me. And this story is repeated every week around Australia one way or another, which is not to say our medical profession are derelict or bad at what they do. It's just the reality. It's, it's the flip side of the brilliance of medicine. It can keep us alive longer. Uh, but those diseases like cancer and motor neurone disease, we still don't have a cure for them. And for some people, it gets very brutal. And they're the people that the law is designed to help. Mm. So what's victory for you in, in this sense? Immediately it's a law being passed in Victoria uh, where because there's a huge amount of evidence now which supports the law and because the government's actually putting it forward. Whereas, Is that the difference in Victoria compared yeah. to the other states? It's, yes, that's yeah. right. In, in other states uh, it's usually been a, a private member's bill whereas now you've got the government putting forward so there's a whole lot more weight behind it. Um, <clears throat> I think if that law passes it does two things. First of all, it's an historic thing. It can't be overturned by the federal government. It's a state's law. Secondly, it becomes proof of concept. Uh, it becomes proof that you can pass this law, that it will help those who it's designed to help. It won't be dangerous to those who uh, deserve protection, you know, the, the elderly or, or those with disabilities who some suggest will be coerced to die under these laws. There's no credible evidence to support that, but that's still the argument. So when a law passes... Uh, it becomes proof of concept. And the experience from overseas is that for doctors, this becomes an important law. Not for all doctors. The law says that any doctor can conscientiously object and that's as it should be. But for those doctors who are currently faced with a really difficult, terrible situation actually of either breaking the law and risking jail or losing their licence to assist somebody to die or leaving that person to suffer. And, you know, we have testimony from doctors and nurses. Uh, in the case of one nurse, 30 years on, still traumatised by what she witnessed and not being asked for help and not being able to give it. So what a law like this does is it enables those doctors in particular that don't have a moral or ethical objection to do their job better, to actually be able to have that conversation with their patient about, wow, things are so bad, what else can we do for you that they currently can't have? Yeah. Andrew, is there another career transition coming up? Is politics on the horizon oh, here? <laughs> that is so not on the horizon. In fact, when this is done, uh, I'm really looking forward to stepping back out of the square. It's not. It's fascinating but definitely not my thing. Um, look, I think male modelling is my next step. <laughs> Again, you just laugh too, way too quickly there, Adam. Uh, right. You should have... You, yeah, you see, this is hurtful. This is why people like me struggle, you know. <laughs> no, look, I'm always transition, but for me uh, I have a philosophy that uh, life is the career, not the other way around. So for me, a couple of times in my career I've stepped out of my professional career and gone and done other things. And, um, and so when I stepped out of television about, I can't remember, four or so years ago, I went, I did a lot of travelling. I, I got my scuba diving licence. I went to Antarctica and the Arctic and 
And for me, life is actually the accumulation of those experiences, not all of which are to do with your job or, or how far up the ladder you got. Um, and uh, I have an expression which is liquid time, which I always hanker for, which is uh, creating space in my life where there's no deadlines and where you can just... Uh, you know, I was asked something, I did an, an interview with New Philosopher magazine a couple of years ago and I did it because I thought they'd ask interesting questions and indeed they did. And one of them was, what's your idea of progress? And, and I, when I answered the questions, I thought, I'm just going to answer them without thinking and then I'm going to see what my answer was. And when I looked back at the answer to that, I thought, that's a reasonably enlightened answer because my answer to the question, what's your idea of progress, was noticing the bark on a tree. And I thought, why I like that answer is it was about the elemental business of being alive, just mm. existing in the universe. And, you know, when I was going through very depressive times, one of the things that um, enabled me to keep stepping forward uh, was to remind myself of, uh, and this sounds very Hallmark greeting card, but literally of the beauty of a sunset or literally the amazingness of a flower and think, you know, whatever other shit is happening in the world, how extraordinary to for however long I'm alive, to be able to experience these miraculous things. And that's uh, that's what I mean about the elemental business of being alive. We are, whether there's a God or not, I don't know. We are um, a part of the universe, a series of atoms that's coalesced for some reason into this conscious being and we have the opportunity to experience the amazingness of the physical world. And that's why I think when people go bushwalking or whatever, um, there is a very powerful meditative effect to that and, and one of the most powerful things about it is not just what's there but what's been removed. And what's been removed is all that human input of advertising and billboards and, and messaging and suddenly we remind ourselves that we are just creatures amongst other creatures and amongst other living things. And I remember interviewing um, Jane Goodall many years ago um, who... Uh, was the first woman that actually she went into the jungles of uh, Tanzania and uh, observed the uh, chimpanzees. And she was the first, she changed our view of ourselves because she was the first person to record chimpanzees using sticks as tools. And she told me an amazing thing. I've never forgot it. So she was basically by herself in these jungles for some months. And I said, what does that do to your perception? She said, it becomes very finely attuned. And she said, I remember a fly landing on my arm but I didn't see it as a fly I just saw it as an extension of me just another collection of molecules and just another living thing Hi Andrew thank you so much for joining us today on the Movember podcast thank you and, and can I just say I think Movember's been a mighty thing and um, well done you Andrew Denton is a TV writer and producer. He is the creator and host of the podcast Better Off Dead. I actually spoke with Andrew before he had a major medical procedure and on behalf of everyone from the Movember community, we thank you and are thinking of you and wishing you a speedy recovery. Thanks to ABC Studios, MySonic Temple and Martin Peralta for production assistance. The Movember Foundation team, John Ackerman and Kirsty Wood. Music in this episode is from the Free Music Archive. This episode was mixed by Dara Hirsch. This November podcast is produced and edited by Rose Reed. I'm your host, Adam Garoni. Thanks for listening to the November podcast. There's more information about the show and men's health on our website at movember.com slash podcast. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes, Audio Boom, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in for our next episode in our series dedicated to transition for more candid conversation about men's health. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.